0: extend my congratulations to John as well very proud of him and, and all of the students that the Lord has blessed us with here at South Asian Seminary it really is an honor to serve you here and thank you so much for being here today it is a nasty nasty ugly day outside and so that you would brave this weather to be here uh, I'm grateful uh, and I'm appreciative of your being here this morning I want you to take your Bible and join me in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, and we're gonna give our attention to verse 17 through verse 34. Sent and saved to serve. Sent and saved to serve. Matthew chapter 20, beginning with verse 17 this is the word of the lord and as jesus was going up to jerusalem he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them see behold we are going up to jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the ethnai to the gentiles to the nations to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something and he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know, that the ruler of the Ethne of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their megaloi, their great ones, exercised authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping... Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity, some translations have the word compassion. One translation says filled with tenderness. He touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and uh, they followed him. This last year has not been a good year in many ways for evangelicals and for Southern Baptists. Many men who have had very high profile positions, uh, incredible influence, uh, wide notoriety and influence both in America and even internationally have been forced to step aside either by resignation or by firing. I know some of these men, some even I count as close friends. As I think about what has happened and I think about the embarrassment, I think about the shame, I think about how the cause of Christ has been harmed. Uh, it does seem to me that though there were many different reasons impacting these different individuals, there is a, a, a single thread that, in my mind, uh, runs throughout each situation and many more like them that we have not heard about, and that is simply this. They forgot that they were saved by a Savior and sent by that same Savior to serve. They forgot that Jesus saved every one of us not to be superstars. He saved us to be his servants. Francis Schaeffer has been used by the Lord to greatly impact my life. I was introduced to his writings when I was a Bible college student and then also in seminary. His impact was great in that, one, he taught me that you could be a Bible-believing Christian and still use your mind. Uh, You did not have to check your brain at the door, but you could actually believe the Bible and still use your mind. In fact, I've often shared that one of my motivations, I think it was a good one, but one of my motivations for pursuing the PhD was that I could be a PhD who actually was an inerrantist and believed in an infallible Bible. And God did allow me to complete that degree. And I will say to you at the age of 62, I have greater confidence in the Bible today than I have at any time in my life. I am absolutely certain this is God's infallible and inerrant word. But not only did Francis Schaeffer teach me a great deal about how to think, he also taught me a great deal about how to live. And on one occasion, he wrote these words, and they have been used by the Lord in my life repeatedly over the years. Christ says we are to take the lowest spot, but we like to take the higher. And we have a lovely rationalization for doing so because every time we take a bigger place, we say that we can have greater influence for Christ. But this is not the Lord's way. Leadership is not to be sought. Leadership is to be waited for. And to the extent that we want power among men, to that extent we are in the flesh and not the Holy Spirit. He has no place in us. To the extent that I demand leadership and want leadership, to that extent I am not ready to be a leader. The verses that I read a moment ago constitute the third and final passion prediction of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a prior prediction, the first actually in Matthew chapter 16, there's a second in Matthew 17, but the third and the most detailed we find here in Matthew chapter twenty. It lays out for us with crystal, crystal clear clarity why exactly our Lord came. But It has a further valuable lesson as well and that is this. This passage teaches us what the gospel will or certainly what the gospel should make of every one of us. And what should the gospel make of us? It should make us humble, lowly servants just like the Lord Jesus Christ. But before you and I surrender to this calling to be a servant, we need to raise and ask some pretty significant questions. What is the nature of being a servant? What exactly is involved in being a servant of the Lord Jesus? What does it mean to be a servant of the suffering servant of the Lord? I want to make quick five observations from these verses that I think give us insight into the nature of being a servant of our Savior. Number one, we should always consider the cost of being a servant. Jesus, the text tells us in verse 17, is going up, literally he is going up to Jerusalem and he took with him the 12 disciples. And then it says, he took them aside on the way. In other words, there's the need for some important Teaching, There's a need for important discipleship training. And as I mentioned a moment ago, verses 18 and 19 provide the most detailed prophecy in the Gospels of his coming passion. These words that you read here recall passages like Psalm 22, the crucifixion psalm, and also one of the suffering servant songs in Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6. And Jesus in these verses notes no less than seven things that are going to happen to him, all of which came to be true. He says in verse 18, see behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man, that wonderful messianic title that he draws from Daniel chapter seven, the son of man, number one, will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. Number two, they will condemn him to death. Number three, they will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be, number four, mocked, flogged, crucified, and seventh and finally, he will be raised on the third day. He will be condemned. It's a legal term. Uh, The idea is he will be tried and executed as a criminal within the legal system of the Gentile world, the Roman Empire. But what I want us to understand is our Lord clearly understood that his life, his path was sovereignly and providentially laid out by his father. There were no accidents, there were no mistakes, nothing was left to chance. His life was laid out in minute detail. And what I want us to understand this morning is this, the same thing is true for you and me. Your life is not an accident, you're not moving forward willy-nilly with God just kind of haphazardly up there looking down with no control, with no direction, no. God is in control of your life to the last detail. He's in control of your life to the last breath. There are no accidents. There are never any surprises with our God and his will for our lives. God never has an aha moment. God never says to himself, well, I didn't see that coming. No, open theism is nothing less than a heresy. It is a false teaching that would deny the complete and the total and the absolute omniscience of our great God. And yes, we need to recognize that for some of us, our life may involve suffering, not certainly the suffering of uh, bearing the sins of the world, but following in the footsteps of this suffering servant. It may be that God indeed calls you to such a life. God may even call you to a life of martyrdom, that's his purpose, that's his plan, that's his business. Our responsibility is simply to say yes and to obey. I remember several years ago when I was speaking at a church in the Houston area and I had dinner on a Friday night at a home there where I was uh, staying. And uh, the lady knew about uh, our missions focus here and our missions emphasis. In fact, she said, I understand that, that Southeastern is the Great Commission Seminary. And I said, well, I would not go that far, but I certainly believe that the Great Commission is important to us and, and we seek to obey the, the final marching order of the Lord Jesus. And, and then she asked me, well, where do you send your missionaries? And I said, well, we we, we send them where the Lord leads them. And she then asked, she said, well, do they go to dangerous places? And I said, well, most of them go to difficult places and uh, they go to places where the gospel is not uh, well thought of. And certainly they are not in a majority context as a Christian. And yes, some of them are in very dangerous places. And I'll never forget what she said. She said, well, I would never want my child to be a missionary. I would never want my grandchildren to be a missionary. I'm glad to give my money, but I don't want to give my children or my grandchildren. That is not the way of Jesus. And the Bible says being a servant is something that before you enter into that path, you better be very careful and count the cost. Number two, You should consider the challenge to being a servant. You see, being a servant doesn't come easy, especially for those of us who have dreamed all of our lives of being served. Uh, Sometimes we deceive ourselves into believing something that amazingly most people actually think is in the Bible, but we know that it's not. The Lord takes care of those who take care of themselves. Uh, That is not in the Bible, okay? There's nothing like that in the word of God. But unfortunately, that is a pretty good description of James and John as well as their mother. Look at what it says in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, that is to Jesus, with her sons, James and John, of course, and kneeling, showing respect before him, before the Lord Jesus. She asked him for something, and so he said to her, well, what do you want? Uh, if you read Mark's account, she says, Lord, I want you to do what I ask. So like your children with you, daddy, mama, I want you to do something for me. Well, what is it you want me to do? Well, I want you to say yes before I tell you what it is. Well, we, we get that uh, from, from those that have gone before us, i.e. two of the disciples and their mother. So he says, no, 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 no. What do you want? And she said to him in verse 21, we'll say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Now, they get so much wrong here. And it's amazing if you think about it, were they listening when he spoke verse 18 and verse 19? Were they listening when he gave two prior passion predictions? Were they listening? when he said in chapter 19 and verse 30 but many who are first will be last and the last first and then again he simply reverses the order in chapter 20 verse 16 so the last will be first and the first last were they listening i if they were they weren't paying very good attention they certainly did not grasp what he was saying now let's be fair they do get one thing right Uh, he is headed for glory and he is headed for a kingdom they're right about that and the bible is crystal clear that in the end our great god and king the lord jesus wins good they got that right too but how you get to that glory they could not have been more wrong they still don't get it And what they need is something that all of us need in this room this morning. They needed a lesson on drinking a cup. Look at what he says there in verse 22. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said quickly and unwittingly, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but... uh, Sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father." James and John come and they allow their mother to do their dirty work for them. I've always found it interesting that they cut Peter out of the deal. Of course, we learn again that blood is often thicker than water, and so Peter along with the others are not involved in their request. Furthermore, their request, as I mentioned a moment ago, reveals their complete ignorance or their unawareness of what Jesus just said. Furthermore, if you go back to chapter 19 and verse 28, you discover this. Jesus has already told the 12 disciples, you're going to sit on 12 thrones. And you're going to sit on those 12 thrones and you're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And Peter and James thought about that and they said, well, that's not enough. Now think about that. It's not enough that Jesus is going to let me sit on a throne. We want the best throne. I want the throne on his left and I want the throne on his right. They want the two most honored thrones. Their response, by the way, reveals at least three things. One, they had a very superficial understanding, even at this point, of what it means to follow Jesus and be his disciples. Secondly, they had a pretty inflated opinion of themselves and their own importance. And thirdly, they were so wrong-headed in how God measures greatness. By the way, it is very interesting to me that at the time of our Lord's greatest glory, There were two people at his left and at his right, but they were not sitting on thrones. They were hanging on crosses. Jesus, in responding to them, is very firm but gentle. He's very direct, but he is gracious. And he says to them in verse 23, you will drink my cup but to sit at my right and my left, that's something my father will decide. In the Bible, the cup is a very powerful metaphor. Sometimes it stands for accepting your destiny, but other times, particularly in the prophets, drinking a cup is a picture of drinking and bearing the wrath of God. And Jesus clearly understood that the cup that he was going to drink not only would involve the suffering physically of dying on that cross, but spiritually he would be drinking into his self, into his own body, the judgment of the wrath of God in your place and in my place. And even though he was the perfect son of God, fully God, fully man, no sin whatsoever, completely committed and devoted to the will of God, even our Lord, Lord could pray in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39 my father if it is possible let this cup pass for me yet not as I will but as you will and by the way Jesus was right James and John would drink a cup James would be of course the first of the disciples martyred in Acts chapter 12 John would be the last apostle to die, being condemned and sentenced to the island of Patmos under the reign of Domitian where he would be very much alone. And yet he reminds them, who sits at my left and who sits at my right, that is not for you to decide. That is something my father will decide. And once again, like us, James and John fail to see that the pathway to glory almost always involves a pathway of suffering. Before you and I receive the crown of glory, there is first of all a cup of suffering. We need to consider the cost and the challenge of being a servant. But number three, we should consider the conflict in being a servant. Verse 24, now when the ten heard it, they were indignant. They were angered. They were ticked off. Eugene Peterson, the message says, they lost their tempers. Thoroughly disgusted with the two brothers. So they're angry. Now, are they angry in a righteous way? I don't think so. I think they were angry, number one, and most likely because they didn't think of it first. And they're like, well, Dad dadgummit, I was thinking the same thing, but James and John kind of beat us to the punch. But then they feign, like we often do, a, a righteous indignation that has no element of righteousness in it whatsoever. And so they're now in a tussle, they're in an argument, they're fussing and fighting with one another once again. And Jesus just gently steps in, look at it there. Verse 25, he called them and said, listen, and he gives us now one of the most important lessons in all of the Bible in contrasting this world's kingdom with his kingdom. Jesus called them to him and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, the, the nations, they they lorded over them the, the word kata, kata. Curiosity, the idea of lording down upon somebody and their great ones, their megaloids, kata exousia, they exercise authority over them. They push people down. They hold people down. They use people to serve themselves. And Jesus says to them, but it shall not be so among you. That is not the way of God's church. That is not the way of God's kingdom. No. Whoever would be great among you must be your diakonos, your deacon, your table waiter, your servant. And whoever would be first among you must actually be your your doulos, your slave. In this world in which we live, this fallen world, The more important you are, the more people serve you. But Jesus says, that's not the way it is in my world. In my world, the more important you are, the more people you serve. Do people in your church see you as a servant? Those of you that are pastors, elders, overseers in positions of of influence and authority, will you take the time after the fellowship meal to clean the tables? Will you take the time after the Bible conference to set the tables up and stack chairs, will you? Would you be willing? Are you willing? Do you look for the broom? Look for the dustpan, look for the mop. Do you? In my uh, Bible college days, I was for a couple of years a janitor. A janitor. Personally, if I were king of the world, everybody would be either a janitor or a waiter before they would be allowed to go into the ministry. That would be a requirement for every single one of us. Why? Because I think it will make us better leaders and better servants. See, if you're a, a janitor, you get to clean toilets. And even in churches, they can have some nasty toilets. I mean, I don't, I don't know what some of them folks did in there, but it's, it's, it's not always a, a pretty thing. It's, it, it can be rather uh, humiliating. And uh, being a waiter, oh my goodness gracious, having to wait on people in terms of, of, of delivering a meal, some of whom may treat you very kindly and very graciously, and others, just to be blunt, act like a donkey's back end. And then when they leave something on the table, you know that they are a donkey's back end. Actually, I should not have said that. That is unfair to donkey back end. So anyway... <laughs> There have been times in my life when I've been embarrassed by what friends of mine have said to a waiter or a waitress. I've been embarrassed by the tone of their voice, by the demands that they make. And then because they were the one that was in charge or they were the one that was uh, responsible for the meal, I always try as best I can to see and I've been many times embarrassed at the pathetic, pathetic tip that was left after we, we left. I haven't told this story in a long time, so most of you would not know it, but when Charlotte and I were first married, like all of you, we were poor as we could possibly be. And so we had a standing rule Anytime anybody asked us to go out for Sunday dinner, we had a very quick and simple response yes. Yes. If you want to invite us out for lunch or dinner, yes. We will be glad to go. And so I remember one time on a Sunday afternoon, we were invited to go to a restaurant in the Garland, Texas area called the Hungry Bull. Now, that's just, you know, like a Texas Roadhouse. Well, no, it's not as nice as a Texas Roadhouse, but nevertheless, it, it had really good food. And so we are there at the, at the Hungry Bull. And, of course, those of you that have, have met me or been around me know that I'm just a yakety, 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 yakety kind of person. I'm still the only person, I think, in the history of the world that made an A in sociology and got an F in conduct in the same class. You say, how in the world do you make an A in the class but get an F in conduct? Well, I wouldn't shut up. And uh, literally on the on the next to last on the last day of class, Mr. Cantrell, the teacher said, "Aiken, I will give you a D for your conduct grade if you'll just shut up today." I got my F, and so anyway, I, <laughs> I, I it just you know I, I tried. I, 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 In fact, again, I don't know why I'm digressing on this. I, I'm probably the only person ever who, in the third grade had a teacher literally tie me in the desk and put masking tape over my mouth. Now she should be in jail for that. <laughs> and today she would be, but not back then. And so I, I was just one of these kinds. So anyway, we are at the Hungry Bull, And this lady walks over that's waiting on us and I'm, I'm just being, you know, who I am. And I said, well, how are you doing today? And she just responds, "Uh, it's Sunday, isn't it? Well, if I'd been smart, I would have stopped right there, but I'm not always intelligent. And so I thought, well, okay. And I said, well, I know. Unfortunately, you have to work on Sunday. And if you didn't have to work on Sunday, you you could go to church. And she responded, church would be the last place that I would go. Well, now I'm wishing I had not opened my mouth to say anything, but I'm too far into it now, and... So I looked at her, and I said, well, what, why, why would you not want to go to church? And she reached into her apron, and she pulled out a track. And she said, this thing right here won't feed my children. You Christians are the cheapest and rudest people I wait on all week. And she turned and walked away. And I was just devastated. Devastated. I mean, I'm like 23, 24 years old, just surrendered to the ministry, just begun to walk with the Lord, and I just—I was totally unprepared for that. And so in a moment, she came back, and I asked the Lord very quickly, well, just give me something to say. And so when she came back, I said, can I just say one more thing? And she said, well, yeah, go ahead. I, I asked for it. I said, no, I, I, I want to say, first of all, I'm so sorry. When, when Christian people have been rude to you, I, I, I am I am very sorry, and I, I want to apologize, but I want to tell you something. If the Lord Jesus were to come into your restaurant, he would not be rude. And secondly, I am so sorry for all the times Christian people have been cheap and have left like a gospel track rather than any money, because I just want you to know that if the Lord Jesus were to come into your restaurant and you were to wait on him, not only would he be the most kind and gracious person you'd ever wait on, he'd be really generous. He really would. Now, folks, I don't say this to boast. I don't. But because of that experience, and my wife is here and she can tell you, we we just had a conviction drilled into our soul that we have honored all of our lives. We never, we never, we never ever, ever, ever tip less than 15%. And now for decades because God has blessed us and we're just fine, we never tip less than 20% ever. Ever, ever, ever. And in fact we have what we call our Waffle House Ministry. I don't know about you but I like really like the Waffle House and, and, and if you're too uppity to go to the Waffle House, shame on you. Um... <laughs> I don't know what your problem is. I mean, the food is good. They serve you quickly, and uh, so we love to go. To the wa- In fact, we went to the Waffle House last night. I got home, and she said, "Honey, I don't want to cook tonight." And I'm going to be playful and say, "Well, what's new?" No, I did not say that, and that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Oh Lord, I shouldn't even played. But anyway. I said, no, honey, I'll be happy to take you out. Where would you like to go? I want to go to the Waffle House. And so we went down to the Waffle House, and we always get the same thing. I always get, by the way, I don't know why I'm digressing on this, but hey, I always get the All Star, the All Star the, the all-star breakfast, you know, eggs over medium, bacon, grits, wheat toast, and a waffle on the crispy side. That's what I always get. And when you put my order together, yes, brother, that, that, it, it will bless you. It will bless you. With what she gets, it's always about 17 to $19. For some reason, the Waffle House doesn't always figure the money exactly the same way, but that's okay. It's always between 17 and $19. And again, just because this is something that God put in our... I'm not saying you have to do this. I'm just saying we have to do this because God's impressed it upon us. And plus, we love doing it. We always pay for that meal with $40. $40. So last night as I walked over, I put two 20s down. He started, well just a minute I said, no, no, no. The rest of it is for you. And he just lit up as you can imagine like a Christmas tree and we actually had a lady in Indianapolis say one time to us when we did this, she said, you know you have just gave me more on that one tip than I've made in eight hours today. Now is a few extra dollars of a- Any skin off our nose? No, it's not at all. But it's a way for us to represent well our servant in that kind of context. Now, I've gone too long, and I always honor the time, so let me very quickly just give a lick and a promise, which I should be ashamed of myself for the last two things because they may be the most important, but I'll note them and then talk about it longer some other time. The fourth thing you need to see is consider Christ when it comes to being a servant. Verse 28 is one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. He redefines what it means to be the Messiah, wedding the son of man of Daniel 7 to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Is he the Christ? Yes. Is he this great apocalyptic figure from Daniel 7 that's going to inherit an eternal kingdom? Yes. And how will he inherit his kingdom? By being the suffering servant of the Lord and giving his life as a ransom for many even the son of man he did not come to this world to be served but he came to serve and in the process to give his life as a ransom for many. Just very quickly, I believe very clearly in verse 28, the doctrine of penal substitution is at least implied, if not overtly stated. I was visiting with my good friend David Allen on Monday, who just wrote an excellent book on the atonement, and he says, you know, there are a lot of guys today that are giving ground and acquiescing and pulling back from the doctrine of penal substitution that he died in our place and paid our penalty. But brothers and sisters, the only way you can go down that road is to deny the clear, unequivocal teaching of the word of God. He died in your place. He paid the penalty that you should have paid. He paid in full the ransom. He, by the blood of his cross, set you free from sin and Satan and hell and all the other horrible things that result from the fallen world of Adam ushered in on all of us. And when you think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you just think about the Son of Man, this wonderful glorious king from heaven who stooped and came down. How dare we not be willing to stoop and come down ourselves? And finally, just consider the cries in being a servant. A lot of times people wonder, why in the world did both Mark and Matthew insert this story about a blind man in Matthew's account? It is two blind men. Mark tells us that one of them, the more vocal one, was a man by the name of Bartimaeus. Well, what did Jesus come to do? It told you in verse 28, he came to what? Serve. So let's just see a good example on his way to Jerusalem and to die on the cross. Let's just see a good example of his service. And I'll just read it and make a quick comment and we'll be finished. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. Uh, Mark's gospel tells us they were beggars. So think about it. They're blind, they're poor, they're beggars, most likely they're homeless The only thing that could have made their situation worse is that they had been women and been Gentiles, and that would have then been the full house. But in this day and age, no one was considered of less importance. No one was considered lower on the rung, In fact, we know from John's gospel that they thought that most likely their blindness was either a result of their own sin or the sin of their parents. So they're sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing, they cried out twice with messianic fervor and expectation, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. And in verse 32, Jesus teaches us what I call the art of stopping. He was not too busy on his way to die for the sins of the world to stop and hear and respond to the cries of two blind beggars. Jesus called them in verse 32, and he asked them, what do you want me to do for you? And unlike James and John who say, oh, we want the, the best thrones in your kingdom, all they simply said was, Lord, we just want to see. And Jesus, in compassion, in pity, filled with tenderness, touched their eyes. Immediately, they recovered their sight. There's their physical healing. But they were also healed spiritually, and they followed him. Those of you that know me know that I am a big fan of missionary biographies, I love to read them. And perhaps no missionaries have impacted my life more than the missionaries Jim Elliott, Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, and Nate Saint. all five of whom were martyred among the Aka Indians in Ecuador, on January the 8th, 1956. Thankfully, Jim Elliott in particular was a journaler and he was also a very active letter writer. And about a little less than a decade is he was about to leave Wheaton College and head to the mission field, he sat down and he wrote a letter to his mom and dad and in that letter, he simply said this, Missionaries are very human folks, just doing what they are asked. Simply a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. May God, by his grace, give us the heart and the the disposition of a bunch of nobodies set about the business of exalting somebody. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Take it, Lord, and plant it deep within our hearts that we would serve others like we have been served by you, Lord Jesus. We ask and pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary.